I'm reclaiming our history, my friends, myself, and Professor Harvey K. He's the professor of democracy over at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. We take back our history today, my friends. And I think if we do it right, we're going to usher in the promise of freedom and equality and democracy for everybody. We can be progressive in the heartland. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And we kick that off today. If you got any questions, please hit us up on them social medias. You can get me at Hartzell965 and Professor K. He is at Harvey J-K-K-A-Y-E Without further ado, let's do this Let's love on America, shall we? My name's Hartzell, Professor Harvey K It's your KC Morning Show January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Citians must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. All right, Professor K, we gotta we gotta come up with a name for this thing, yeah? Hartzell and Harvey love America. What do you think? I think that's got some real legs, sir. You tell me. I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Harvey K, professor of democracy at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. What is it like having the actual coolest business card title of all time, professor of democracy? How does one achieve such status? I can tell you that it's always been about democracy to me. So it just worked out. Call it fate, kismet that it happened that way. <laughs> but I will also confess to everyone, it's now professor emeritus. I retired a year ago and then I was awarded the title Professor Emeritus, sort of on the faculty, but I'm not an active teacher in the classroom any longer. Well, it's like a birthday, right? So when you when you reach that emeritus status, you feel both older and wiser, right? So, you know, Professor K, how do you feel now? You know, you know? it means I'm old enough to drink now. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Harvey K, he is a voice that uh, I have I've looked to for a long time. And he's a voice that's helped shape my voice, as well as a lot of our voices on the collective left. He's got so many amazing books out. FDR on Democracy is his latest. He is, I think, got the best on Thomas Paine, Thomas Paine and the Fight for America. He's got his collection of essays, Take Hold of Our History. I said this tweet a few weeks ago, Professor, for all of Twitter's faults, a hive of scum and villainy, to quote Star Wars, but every so often it, it does some pretty cool things like, you know, me sliding into your DMs and basically fanboying as fate would have it. Well, a certain junior senator from the great state of Missouri gave us a good reason to do a thing. Following other attempts in the House, a Republican senator is now putting his opposition to critical race theory in writing. My legislation says is that if a local school district takes federal tax dollars, then they have to teach 
and have kids learn to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, the preamble of the Constitution, be able to identify the Bill of Rights. Senator Josh Hawley on the bill he calls the Love America Act, which also includes withholding funds to schools that link those items to white supremacy or racism. It's a tactic that's been tried before. In 1974, Congress withheld federal funding from states that did not enact a maximum speed limit of 55 miles an hour, a law repealed in 1995 but it has at times stuck. States were threatened with a 10% reduction in the federal highway fund if they didn't impose 21 as the drinking age back in 1984, a law that remains in place to this day. While education officials insist critical race theory itself is not actually taught in K-12 schools, parents are coming out in large numbers in some districts, sounding alarm bells at local school board meetings. Parents aren't stupid. They, they do know, and you can call it whatever name you want, but when you say that the United States is systemically racist and structurally evil, they know what that means. So with that, not only do we see your bluff, Josh Holly, we see it, we call it, and we raise it because every week on your KC Morning Show, myself and Professor Harvey K. We are going to reclaim that radical history. We're going to love America so hard, so progressive hard. Professor Harvey K, welcome back to your KC Morning Show, sir. I guess get cozy because we're going to be doing this for a while. Thank you. And I got to tell you, I couldn't imagine doing it with a more enthusiastic <laughs> friend than you. This is going to be so great. So my friend, break this down for us. What is this and, and what does it do? He proposed a Love America Act. They actually issued, I think it's from his press office, a very short rendition of this. It may actually be the bill itself. It requires students to read the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Pledge of Allegiance, and recite portions of these foundational texts at certain grade levels. In first grade, students read and are able to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. In fourth grade, students read the U.S. Constitution and are able to recite its preamble. In eighth grade, students read the Declaration of Independence and are able to recite its preamble. And in 10th grade, students read and are able to identify the Bill of Rights. Finally, this would make schools ineligible for federal funding if they teach that the Declaration, the Constitution, or the Pledge of Allegiance are the product of white supremacy or racism. Let's get one thing clear. Up until that final clause, one might readily appreciate what Josh Hawley wants them to do. You know, in first grade, students read and are able to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Fine. Right. I mean, I know there are people who would say they shouldn't have to, but, you know, it's a good idea. Secondly, it, this is out of order, by the way. He says in fourth grade, they should read the U.S. Constitution and are able to recite his preamble. What fourth grader <laughs> is going to be able to go all the way through the U.S. Constitution before they scream, let me out of this. And then in eighth grade, students read the declaration. Frankly, if you're going to do it, you probably ought to reverse order if you're going to do it at all. And then in 10th grade, students read and are able to identify the Bill of Rights. I mean, it's striking that they didn't put that earlier on. But here's the thing, OK? Let's assume for the moment that we read this. And I would bet if we showed this, I mean, if we showed this to a thousand people, the vast majority of them would say, wow, that's a good idea. OK, cultivating citizenship, cultivating an understanding of the promise of America, which will be the theme of our series. But then that final clause makes schools ineligible for federal funding if they teach that the Declaration, the Constitution, the blah, 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 is the product of white supremacy or racism. Now, let's make one thing clear. The promise of America transcends what reactionaries 
have done to America and its people in, in all our diversity. The promise transcends that. And we'll get to these things as we talk about Thomas Paine and common sense, the actual declaration. And we go beyond that uh, declaration of sentiments at Seneca Falls in 1848. Along the way, I think I'll probably have to point out the degree to which Frederick Douglass in What to the Slave is the Fourth of July basically shows the degree to which even the most oppressed can rise to recognize the promise that literally was denied, cruelly denied by way of slavery, and also, of course, the marginalization of women. But in terms of Douglas's priorities, slavery, which he himself escaped from, we have to understand how Douglas himself came to appreciate such things as the Declaration and the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights, how a, a former slave could rise to a, a point where he could literally transcend the reality to see the power of the promise. And if I can real quick, Harvey, that is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this with you. In fact, when we had our call last week, I specifically mentioned Frederick Douglass because I am someone who I think, yes, this country was built on ideals that may not have been intended for me, a black man. But you know what? They made the mistake of putting those ideals on paper. And now I'm going to do all I can to bring as many folks as I can to achieving that more perfect union. And, and we're going to make sure that we expose the realities that people confronted, the oppression and the exploitation, but how they themselves transcended it and demanded the promise made by those who would otherwise deny it. We would be suppressing the story of America if we allowed ourselves to not refer to the contradictions between the words of the Declaration and the slavery that prevailed and subjected African Americans to the status of bondsmen, of slaves. And by the way, moreover, we should not forget that vast numbers of white Europeans came to this country as indentured servants. The difference is the indentured servant had a limited term of indenture. The African American slave the only way in which the African-American slave was ever going to escape that status was either to run away, which many did, or two, have a master who came to realize the vileness of slavery. There is no way you can refer to the Declaration or the Constitution, or later, in fact, the Pledge of Allegiance, which itself we'll get to at some point. But they've written this Love America Act in such a way that to even talk about slavery and the contradictions would be possible grounds for denying federal funds to public schools. So our task is in many ways to trump, excuse the, the verb, to trump Hawley and say, hey, you want to talk about a Love America Act? We're going to show you the real story of America that we need to embrace, which includes those words that you would have students recite, but does not deny the contradictions that led to the struggles and led to later generations of Americans and figures such as Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Frederick Douglass, Eugene Debs, et cetera, et cetera, themselves proposing not only to redeem the promise of America, but to advance it even further than the original text themselves might at first seem to go. And especially now, because, you know, what these clowns are doing, you've got this nationalist type of patriotic feel with what he's proposed with this Love America Act. But then as you put out in your most recent article for Common Dreams, he's also now trying to do this big tech populist thing. Well, just to remind people. So in that book of his, The Tyranny of Big Tech, what he did is he lays out a narrative of radical America in order to hijack the radical story, because he then 
postures as if he's going to propose a radical change in big tech. We imagine that he's going to offer some radical ideas to how we can democratize big tech. But he doesn't. What he talks about is breaking up big tech, which is undeniably a radical thing in itself, and creates small capitalist companies in order to provide, number one, for competition, and two, to weaken their capacity to control the hearts and minds of Americans. But here's the thing. At the same time that he proposes that, does he say anything? Does he say anything to actually improve the lives of working people, black brown or white. No, he does not. The point is he's playing a populist card, but he's playing a populist card, which basically speaking does nothing to to address the really harsh inequalities that have developed over these last 50 years as a consequence originally of weak need Democrats and right-wing Republicans. That's what makes him so dangerous, right? We got someone trying to misappropriate the American story on the back of progressivism. In order to make the, the transition, if you don't mind, there was an intellectual. He was a writer, a teacher, an editor back in the 1930s and 40s, himself a radical. His name was Max Lerner. And for what it's worth, he actually did his PhD in St. Louis, Missouri. Part of what was then called, it was called, I think, the Rand School of Social Science, which was associated with Washington University or the Brookings School of Social Science, it might have been. But anyhow, it moved to Washington, D.C., dropped the graduate school and became the Brookings Institute. I love his writings from the 30s and the 40s. Absolutely love them. And in amongst his many essays, in some cases books, I came across a whole series of quotes that I I don't want to plagiarize them. So I always make it a point of saying these are his words. I'll start off by saying this. This was a quote from 1939 in a book that I absolutely love titled, It is Later Than You Think, The Need for a Militant Democracy. And here's what he said along the way. The basic story in the American past, the only story ultimately worth the telling is the story of the struggle between the creative and the frustrating elements in the democratic adventure. And I think that really gets at the kind of thing we want to do, okay? We're not going to deny the reactionary part of that American story, but we're going to talk especially about the creative, the encouraging, and the inspiring parts of that story. But here's something else, and this is my answer, I hope our answer, to the likes of Josh Hawley as a way of launching what we're going to do. He wrote in 1943 during World War II in an essay, an opinion piece entitled, History Belongs to the People. And here's what he said. History belongs to the people. It must be taught as part of the people's struggle to build a free democracy on this continent. It must be taught as the prelude to what American democracy can do and be. The likes of Josh Hawley want us to believe that the Declaration and the Constitution are dead documents. That is, they're stated, we should bow down to them as if they're, you know, they're up in textual heaven. But no, we're progressives, we're radicals, we're social democrats, we're socialists. We believe that the promise itself lives because later generations embrace it and advance it. The sky's the limit. The future is the limit, Harvey. Maybe we need that pump up speech at halftime. Maybe it's something just as simple as that. And so often for progressives, we have those stories. We have those documents that can get us that pump up speech we need. And so often I think we're afraid to reclaim that. Why? Let's keep in mind the possibility when we title this episode, we might want to call it the manifesto episode. (laughs) We're declaring our intention of trumping Josh Hawley and basically recovering, reminding, 
and encouraging the American progressive and radical story, not for the sake of just honoring the past, but for the sake of making the present and the future more democratic, small d democratic. How's that? I love it. We're going to take one quick break. And when we come back, we're going to wrap things up with Professor Harvey K. the manifesto episode. I like it. <laughs> I am not So right around this time of the episode, we usually take some questions for Professor Harvey K and myself. And uh, and by myself, I mean, I will just read the questions and Professor K will answer. So I think maybe for this one, Professor K, maybe we give them a little bit of a teaser for next week. Sounds good. But I do want to tell people that we're serious about taking questions. And I also want to warn them, if they think that they're your friend, they've got to send in questions because otherwise I'll be asking you questions in a quiz-like fashion. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I failed too many of those to be going through that trauma again, my friends. So send us all your questions. Let's kick it off with this. I remember listening to a talk you gave where you said that there is a moment when the rebellion became a revolution. And we're talking about the American Revolution. And, you know, so much of the last 16, 17 months, I've said, you know, we want to make this moment a movement. So as we look forward to help propel us into the future, I think we got to go Thomas Paine. I think we got to go Common Sense. Can you set the stage for us, Professor Harvey K? 1776. We're going to start a little bit before that because we want to talk about Thomas Paine's arrival in America and how impressed he was with what he found. Go online and type in common sense, get a copy free of that pamphlet of Thomas Paine's comments and, and browse it, read it. Maybe questions will occur to you for me to explain to you elements of it. Hell, if you want to go out and, and buy the book Thomas Paine and the Promise of America in some form, you know, Kindle or otherwise, feel free to do that. The point is, get ready for the episode so that as we talk, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. In any case, we'll explain everything. Let me just start off by saying that Thomas Paine was my childhood hero and he's been my lifelong hero. And I won't go into the full story of how that came to happen, but I will tell you this. Thomas Paine came to America as an immigrant from Britain. He was fired by the British government for having tried to do some labor organizing. I'm simplifying the fuller story. And he came to America encouraged by Benjamin Franklin to start over again. And he was already in his late 30s, which in those days was basically middle age. And he came to America fully aware that the revolution was underway. He had spent many an hour in the tavern back in England with his friends as part of the Headstrong Company talking about the American Revolution. He arrives in Philadelphia. It's basically 1775 when he arrives. And basically what he finds blows him away. He discovers that Americans are already, as Hartzell was saying, they had made a rebellion on the scale really of a revolution, but it had yet to become a revolution. What it is, is they rose up and threw out the British authorities from these towns and cities because they were utterly fed up with the idea that the British Parliament was legislating laws to govern them that they had no say in deliberating or in approving. You know, the old line, no taxation without representation. Right, well, it was right, more right. than that. It's, it's no legislation without representation. And they said, we're just not going to accept these, these laws and these taxes. And they rose up en masse from the bottom up and throughout the British authorities. Now, their campaigning for many years basically said, we are British subjects, just as if we were living in England and we were British subjects there. And we demand representation. Now, let me just say that isn't quite a demand for democracy, because in fact, in England, very few 
men could vote. There were property requirements, had to pay a certain amount in taxes. Probably there were more men voting in America, white men voting, because the rules may well have applied as to who was eligible to vote, but there wasn't the degree of poverty among white men in America as there was in England. The point being this, that they rose up to demand their rights as free-born Englishmen, which were basically certain kinds of civil rights, did not necessarily include political rights that we would associate with a full-scale democratic republic. When Paine arrives, however, he sees this revolution in the making, but he can't believe what he's seeing in two terms. One, this revolution, which is still at the stage of a rebellion, and two, that Americans themselves don't see themselves truly as Americans. They see themselves as as British. By the way, he was also shocked when he arrives in Philadelphia to discover a slave market. He said, how could it be possible that a people that are literally rising up in the name of liberty are denying liberty to their fellow humans in America, as in the form of slavery? So he gets very lucky because he has an introduction from Benjamin Franklin. He gets a job working at a printing house a newspaper and magazine kind of shop. And he becomes the editor of the magazine. And he's one of his first major pieces, he's writing a lot, is actually a call for the end of African slavery in America, which brings him to the attention of a couple of the members of the Continental Congress who were themselves anti-slavery. Well, in conversations, and I'm really putting this all together in a nutshell, he is outraged at the events of Lexington and Concord. And in the course of these conversations, one of those figures in the Continental Congress named Benjamin Rush, a doctor, a very prominent young doctor, says to him, you really ought to write a pamphlet calling for the separation from the British Empire. And it takes a little bit for Payne to believe this is a good idea because it's basically treason to do such a thing. But in the course of the remaining months of 1775, he sets himself to the task of writing just that pamphlet. And it will appear in January of 1776. And in this pamphlet, even before he calls for anything approaching independence, he basically writes about how humans, Americans, essentially is what he's saying, have it in their capacity, and he eventually even uses that sentence, to literally start the world over again. Because they have, in essence, are naturally sociable, as are all humans. They are naturally capable of creating their own kind of democratic political order. And here they are subject to Britain's parliament and king. And it's time, he says, to literally disabuse ourselves of any sense of reverence for kings. Kings bring oppression. They bring war. Half the time, they're jackasses. He actually says, is it really the case God would give us an ass instead of a lion as a leader? Those kinds of things. He had a sense of humor. And eventually, he says, the only way in which we can truly pursue the possibilities is as an independent people. But he says, if it's only a matter of getting rid of a king, then it may not be worth doing. What he really is saying is, and we'll get into this in fuller form next week, is we need to create, and he doesn't use the word democracy, but he says we need to create a democracy. He doesn't use the word, but he lays out a plan for creating a democracy. All I can say is that when this pamphlet appears, within two weeks, the first couple of thousand sell out. And by the time that the spring comes, okay, this is now January, February, March, April, May, possibly 100 to 120,000 copies have been sold. And he takes no reward for this, no royalties. He says any real royalty should go to buying Washington's troops because there's already a Continental Army trying to resist the British. They should be given mittens. Let these royalties 
Buy mittens for the troops. I'm just trying to put my head around that number. Hold on. That's a crazy number because there's only how many Americans? There are 3 million people in America. 500,000 of those 3 million are African-American, the overwhelming majority of whom are slaves. Let's put it this way. It was the best, greatest bestseller in America other than the Bible. And that's before Oprah Winfrey had her book club, keep in mind. <laughs> Newspapers were just excerpting parts of, of the pamphlet. So everyone saw this. And by the way, in, in taverns, farmers in rural areas, artisans in urban areas, they were reading it aloud in the taverns. I mean, literally aloud. I mean, it, it just swept from, you know, New England down to South Carolina and Georgia. It's not that long, y'all. In fact, follow it along with us this week because it really is. It is a political pump up speech. And without giving too much away for next week, before we dive in more, I guess I'm just curious hearing all this. How did this radical man who opposed slavery from the jump start? how is he being quoted by Ronald Reagan? Like, how the hell do we get here? Well, what's most weird is Ronald Reagan, when he does quote Thomas Paine, quotes the most radical line ever from Thomas Paine, the most radical line of modern history. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. So get ready for that next week. OK, get ready for that. I'm not going to say another word about it other than to let you all know Thomas Paine came out of a, an artisan family, essentially a sort of working class artisan family. His father was a corset maker. I'll leave it at that. Sex always sells. Sex always sells, Harvey. Always. <laughs> professor Harvey K. He is the professor of democracy emeritus at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. His latest is out. It's called FDR on Democracy, but he has a whole host of phenomenal works that you should all be checking out, including Thomas Paine and the Promise for America, which would be a great precursor to what we'll be talking about next week as we pick up this series because harvey we just love america my friend we just love it take that josh holly kick rocks josh holly if there's one thing that i found is as true as the sunrise it's that i like being on there with hot the casey morning show you're listening to the casey morning show